this afternoon we are dealing with creation, and so we shall read also from our confessions, first from the Belgian Confession, Article 10, and then the first part of Article 12. Article 10 of the Belgian Confession, you can find that on page 447. The heading is Jesus Christ, True and Eternal God. But in that article especially, the Lord Jesus Christ is seen also as the one who was involved in creation. And that will have our consideration this afternoon. So Article 10, and then Article 12, and then after that we will read from our confession from Lord's Day 9 of the Heidelberg Catechism. We believe that Jesus Christ, according to his divine nature, is the only begotten Son of God, begotten from eternity, not made nor created, for then he would be a creature, but of the same essence with the Father, equally eternal, who reflects the glory of God and bears the very stamp of his nature and is equal to him in all things. He is the Son of God, not only from the time that he assumed our nature, but from all eternity as these testimony, when compared with each other, teach us. Moses says that God created the world. The Apostle John says that all things were made by the word which he calls God. The letter to the Hebrews says that God made the world through his Son. Likewise, the Apostle Paul says that God created all things through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it must necessarily follow that he who is called God the Word, the Son, and Jesus Christ did exist at that time and all things were created by him. Therefore he could say, Truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. John 8, verse 58. And he prayed, Glorify thou me in thy own presence with the glory which I had with thee before the world was made. John 17, verse 5. And so he is true, eternal God, the Almighty, whom we evoke, worship, and serve. Now, Article 12, that first paragraph, because the rest of that article deals with the creation of angels. We believe that the Father, through the Word, that is, through his Son, has created out of nothing heaven and earth and all creatures when it seemed good to him and that he has given to every creature its being, shape, and form, and to each its specific task and function to serve its creator. We believe that he also continues to sustain and govern them according to his eternal providence and by his, infallible, and by his infinite power in order to serve man to the end that man may serve his God. Thus far from the Belgian Confession, and now let's read what we confess in the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 9. And there we find God's word summarized as follows. What do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and all that is in them, and who still upholds and governs them by his eternal counsel and providence, is for the sake of Christ his Son, my God and my Father. In him I trust so completely as to have no doubt that he will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul, and will also turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this life of sorrow. 
he is able to do so as Almighty God and willing also as a faithful Father. Our concentration this afternoon will be especially on the first part of this article dealing with creation. After the sermon, we will sing from Psalm 104, the stanzas 1, 2, and 8. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, that includes you, teenagers, and also boys and girls, recently there has been some discussion in some magazines, such as The Clarion and Christian Renewal, and on internet blogs, about the view of some people in the Canadian Reformed churches regarding evolution and creation. Some of these so-called enlightened scientists and intellectuals in our churches have difficulty believing in a literal six-day creation. One such intellectual stated that many Christians are able to reconcile the theory of evolution with their faith. According to that person, there is strong evidence for the theory of evolution. Among other things, she cites the old age of the earth, common descent as indicated by the similarities in DNA between animals and humans, and the fossil record. She and others want to try to combine the Genesis record with a theory of evolution. There are also those within reformed circles who adhere to the framework theory. For example, some professors at the Westminster Theological Seminary. The framework theory is an, is an interpretation of the first chapter of the book of Genesis and states that the seven-day creation account is not a literal or scientific description of the origins of the universe. Rather, according to them, it is an ancient relig religious text which outlines a theology of creation. The seven-day framework is therefore not meant to be chronological, but is a literal, literary or symbolic structure designed to reinforce the purpose purposefulness of God in creation and the Sabbath commandment. In other words... It is only a teaching model. It only wants to teach us that we must work for six days and rest on the seventh. This framework interpretation also wants to take into account the cultural and historical conditions at the time Genesis was written and to interpret Genesis with that in mind. In other words, they believe that what we have in the first three chapters of Genesis reflects the cultural and historical conditions of that time and therefore not to be taken literally. Now, Lord's Day 9 also deals with creation. Actually, only the first half of the answer deals with it. Articles 10 and 12 of the Belgian Confession also deal with our creation. But again, these statements are very brief and to the point. The fact that so little is said about creation in our confessions was a concern to some Reformed believers when they broke away from another more liberal Reformed church, where a liberal interpretation of Genesis was tolerated. 
and therefore a movement sprung up to come up with a new confession. The aim was to forestall any further attack on the fact that God created all things in seven days. The aim was admirable. However, as many pointed out, our confessions give more than an adequate defense of the orthodox position, the creation in six days. A new confession is not necessary. The only reason that the attack on the doctrine had such an effect in that more liberal Reformed church was that those churches allowed themselves to deviate from Scripture and therefore from the three forms of unity in the first place. The Heidelberg Catechism and the Belgic Confessions are not ambiguous whatsoever about the creation in six days. On the contrary, these accounts, though short, are clear and to the point. And we must uphold what they teach, for they are an accurate summary of the Bible. If you deny a literal interpretation of Six, of the six days of creation, then you deny God's word. For we build our faith on the basis of God as the almighty creator of heaven and earth. And that's what I will preach to you about this afternoon. The theme is as follows. I believe in God the Father, almighty creator of heaven and earth. First, we will see I believe in God. Secondly, I believe in the Father. Thirdly, I believe in the Creator. If we confess that God has created heaven and earth in six days, then that is first of all a matter of faith. That's where we have to start. It is with faith, it is with that faith that we lay the basis for what we hold to be true. And so the question we have to ask first of all is what we mean when we say, I believe. No doubt you will say that means that we are convinced that there are certain things that are true even though you cannot prove it. It means, for example, that you believe God exists even though you can't see him. It means that you believe what you are told in the Bible, including the miracles and all the stories that are told therein. You also believe that the Son of God came to earth and that he became man. He lived among us. And then he suffered and he died so that our sins could be forgiven. That is why we also celebrated the Lord's Supper this morning. We celebrated out of the conviction that the Lord Jesus really existed. And that through his blood we can most certainly receive the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But I believe also means something else. It means that you put your trust in something or someone. If someone says to you that he believes in you, then he does not mean that he believes that you exist. He can see that with his very own eyes. It means something else. Namely, that he has a certain confidence in you. He believes in you. He believes that, he, that you will accomplish what you say you will accomplish. And such faith will be based on past performance. It will be based on the fact that that person knows what you are capable of because of the way you have conducted yourself in the past. So when we say, I believe in God, then you do not just say that you believe that he exists, but that you put your trust in him and that you know what he is capable of. He is the almighty God who created heaven and earth and who also sustains his creation. 
There are lots of people who say that they believe in God. They are convinced from what they see and experience around them that a higher being must have had a hand in this creation in one way or the other. They don't know exactly what role he will have played, but somehow a higher meeting, uh, a higher being must have had something to do with the existence of the universe. And so when they say that they believe in God, then that, then that usually means only that they believe that he exists. That's it. They don't know what or where or how. There is no relationship with that higher being or any other kind of connection. The fact that he is out there somewhere is enough for them. For the rest, they don't want to think about it any further. That would only complicate things. For that would mean that you would also have to worship him. And that means as well that he will hold you accountable. And people don't want that. They don't want that kind of relationship. They want their freedom. They don't want anyone including God, telling them what to do. And so they come up with their own set of morals. They figure that if they are good people, generally, then that higher being, whoever he is, will accept them. However, when we say that we believe in God, then we mean not only that we believe that he exists, but that we can trust in him. We therefore also believe what he tells us. We believe in his word. We believe his word. That is something different when we say that we believe in a certain person. For when you believe in people, then you are bound to become disappointed. People do not always do what you expect them to do. They're not always true to their word. They're not reliable. You can trust a, glo a close friend at one time, And then the next, the next thing you know, he or she betrays you. Friendships come and go. As it says in Psalm 146, verse 3, Do not put your trust in princes and mortal men who cannot save. But that's not the way it is with God. You can put your trust in him. A short little while ago, God made promises to the parents of Peyton Froma and to the child itself. The parents and all of us trust that God will keep his promises. Why? Because the parents, and we all know and believe, that God is totally reliable. In the early church, when a child or an adult was baptized, then the parents and the whole congregation would collectively confess that they believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And that confession later on became more elaborate, and which was developed into the Apostles' Creed. We no longer do that right at the time of baptism. That is because we make that confession every Sunday. As a matter of fact, today we did it twice, when we celebrated the Lord's Supper this morning and this afternoon, as we do in every worship, afternoon worship service. Time and again, we confess our faith in the triune God, meaning that we trust him. But why? Why do we trust him? Well, because we also know him as our father. We come to the second point. That's how God has revealed himself to us. He's not a stranger to us. Do you know how he became our father? Well, the catechism explains that beautifully. The catechism tells us that God became our father through 
the Lord Jesus Christ. It is impossible for that to have happened otherwise. It is only because of him that we can be children of God. Because of our sin, we became children of the devil. And but because of the Lord Jesus Christ who died for our sins, we could once again become and be children of God the Father. In one statement, the Heidelberg Catechism gives a wonderful summary of how we became children of God the Father. It says that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is, and now here it comes, for the sake of Christ his Son, my God and my Father. The fact that the eternal Father of the Lord Jesus Christ is also my Father, your Father, is almost too great for us to fathom. We can hardly imagine it. It is a great miracle by the God of miracles. And in order to remind us that God is capable of performing such a miracle, the catechism reminds us that our Father is at the same time the one who created the heavens and the earth. It is that same great God who created all things out of nothing. The catechism does the same thing as we see throughout scripture time and again. Whenever the scriptures speak about us as God's creatures whom God loves and takes care of, then the scriptures in the same breath mention that he is able to do that because he is almighty God who created heaven and earth. That's also how we began the worship service this afternoon when we sang from Psalm 121. Remember? Unto the hills I lift my eyes. From where comes all my aid when troubled or afraid? The Lord shall to my help arise. He who made earth and heaven, his aid is freely given. It is a good rendition of the original. God reminds us of his greatness as shown in his creation. But he is not just some impersonal force out there somewhere. No, he is very much involved in our lives by providing for us physically and spiritually, just like he takes care of all his creation. And that is why he tells us to lift up our eyes. Our help comes from above. And that's also where he displays his greatness. Let me ask you, when you lift up your eyes, what do you see? In the night sky, you see billions upon billions upon billions of stars. And there are more stars in the sky than there are people on the earth. There are literally trillions of stars out there. Do you know who made all these stars? Of course you do. God. And as he says in his word, he knows every star. He knows them all by name. Within that great universe, we are nothing but a speck of dust, less than a speck of dust. And we might think that if that is how we appear to him, he could hardly, if at all, be bothered with us. But Isaiah turns that exactly around. God does not say, because I am so great, I cannot be bothered with you. No, he says, exactly because I am so great, I am able and willing and eager to be involved in every aspect of your life. That is the kind of God and Father I am. And it's also clear from what he says further in that passage. He says in the verses 27 and following, Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? 
Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases power of the weak. Isaiah is speaking here to the believer. He's speaking to you. He's speaking to me. God the Father assures us that we matter to him. Every single one of us. Don't you ever doubt that. He does not overlook one of his creatures. Not even a sparrow. He is, as Isaiah says in verse 28, the everlasting God. And the catechism says the same thing. He is the eternal father. Eternity. What does that mean? Applied to God, it means that he has always been there and he will continue always to be there. There was never a time that he was not, nor will there be such a time. And there was never a time when he was not a father either. He did not at some time become a father. No, his fatherhood is part of his essence. We cannot think of God other than that he is a father. It's part of his nature. Else he would no longer be himself. It is not so either that the scriptures tell us about God as our father as a matter of speaking. As if we can deduce from our own experience what God's fatherhood is like. As if, we can, as if from what we have seen here on earth about his father's love and care, we can somehow apply to God. You see, it's the other way around. Whatever we observe here on earth is only a small, perverted reflection of the fatherhood of God. When we think of the way an earthly father looks after and guides and protects and provides for his child, then we only have the tiniest impression of what God the Father is like. His Father is so much greater and so much more profound than anything you will find here on this earth. We are told that he is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. His fatherhood, in other words, does not begin with man, but it begins with his son. We would be inclined to think that God's fatherhood should first be mentioned in relation to us. The catechism, correctly so, doesn't do so. The catechism is masterful in the way that it puts it. It is succinct and breathes the language of the scriptures. The catechism tells us that he is our father for the sake of Christ his son. He is not our father for our sakes in the first place, but for the sake of his beloved son. That is the way it is because it cannot be otherwise. God's love is only for himself. It is not a divided love. It is simple and complete. He doesn't love one thing and then another and then again another. There are no objects of his affections which divide his interest and care. No, his love is for himself. And if we belong to him, then we can share in that love. How wonderful. It's so comforting for us to know that, isn't it? We are not just as a speck of dust to him or as a grasshopper, but as his beloved covenant children. Isn't that amazing? The same truth can be found in the passage that we read together. It says in Isaiah 40, verse 15 through 17, Surely the nations are like a drop 
in the bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He raised the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. Now, who pays attention to a drop in a bucket? Who pays attention to a speck of dust on the scales? That's how a whole nation appears to God. Can you imagine how he regards one single human being? He says in verse 18, To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare to him? And yet he cares about each and every one of us. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, when we think about God, we think about him as the almighty creator. And when you think about him as the almighty creator, then you have to stand in awe of him. And we had better not limit his power, as those do who doubt that God created heaven and earth in six days. Come to the third point. They use the arguments of worldly scientists and want to blend them with scripture. That's always our tendency, isn't it? We want the best of both worlds. That's what we want, for example, with regard to the way we live. We constantly need to be reminded that we have to seek heavenly treasures. That we have to seek the glory of God, not our own glory. That it is all about God. We are not serving ourselves. That's not why God put us here on this earth. No, we are to give glory to his great name. And we are to do that as well in our confession about God as the almighty creator. Thankfully, there is not a minister in the Canadian Reformed churches, as far as I'm aware, who does not believe that God literally created heaven and earth in six days and that he rested on the seventh day. And thankfully, there are also eminent scientists among us who fully accept the six days of creation as well. And they also wrote letters to the editor, all men with PhDs. There are only a few who want to distort that important biblical teaching. They say, for example, that it is impossible not to believe in the old age of the earth. They see there is all kinds of evidence of an old age. I like the way how one Reformed theologian from the old... OPC, Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the Reverend G.I. Williamson, responded to his claim. In a letter to the editor in the Christian Renewal, he said the following, I can't escape the influence of a paper I read many years ago by one of the original members of the faculty of Westminster Seminary, Dr. Oswald T. Ellis. Dr. Ellis argued that in order to understand God's work of creation, we need to give a larger place in our thinking and argument to Jesus Christ, our Lord. After all, the Apostle John calls him the Word, who was with God in the beginning, and that he himself is God, John 1, verse 1. John also said all things were made through him, and that without him nothing was made that was made. But fortunately for us, he not only displays his power to create in the beginning, as recorded in Genesis 1 and 2, but also during his earthly ministry. Yes, Jesus created food to feed 5,000 people. He also changed water into wine, John 6. Was that appearance of age a deception? 
Not at all. It was a glorious demonstration of the fact that the creator of the universe does not need a long time to create something that looks old. Time itself was created by him because everything that is not God was created by God out of nothing. Thus far from Reverend Williamson. Indeed, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, think about it. What about Adam himself? When God created him, he created him as a full-grown man. He had age already built into him. He did not create him as a baby or as a seed. And what about our DNA and their similar similarities to other creatures? Well, a sermon is not a scientific tr- treatise. If that were the case, we'd all be in trouble because I don't know that much about science. But let me just briefly quote from those who are knowledgeable about these things. But as background, let me first of all read to you from Friday's Edmonton Journal. There's a story in the, in the journal with the heading, Neanderthals are not totally extinct. That article wants to have us believe that there is a little Neanderthal in most of us. So-called experts can determine from the DNA in people that cave dwellers inbred with modern humans shortly after they left Africa. And their genes now live in us a little bit. That's what the journal says. Dr. Margaret Helder, in a letter to the editor of the Clarion, deals with this issue. She informs us that the DNA is quite limited in what it can tell us. For example, she writes, the DNA does not code for the shape and function of organisms. She also writes that there are levels of organization which the scientists do not understand, but which dictate why one is a fruit fly and another is a mongoose, etc. She says what the DNA tells us depends upon our preconceptions. The pity of it is that so many Christians are prepared to acquiesce to secular assumptions. They don't seem to know what they are doing and that they have a choice. Right on. That reminds us of what we read in Isaiah 40. There, the Lord God, through the hand of Isaiah, questions man's ability to think straight and to have a complete picture. He says in verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hands or with the breath of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in the basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in the balance? Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, the Lord God created everything with his word, with his breath. He spoke and it came to be. He is the almighty God who is so powerful and so great and so beyond our comprehension that we can only stand back and stand in awe of him. Do you know what the wonderful thing is about all this? That God, that almighty God has made you and me part of his creation and that he has even made us the crown of his creation. How is that possible? How is it possible that that almighty God wants to have a relationship with us? And yet he does. Also with that little baby, Peyton. He is our father through our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you say about my father in heaven that he did not mean it, when he created, that he created heaven and earth in six days, then I have great difficulty with you. 
as far as I'm concerned, that you have taken the ground right away from under your feet. Because it is on the basis of that faith that we build our faith. It is on that basis that we have a covenant relationship with the Lord our God. For if we go along with what those so-called experts tell us, then the first Adam would not be a real person. Do you know what the consequences of that is? That would mean that then you would also have to doubt that the second Adam was a real person. And that second Adam is the Lord Jesus Christ through whom I became a child of God. And I believe in him. I trust in him. It is the only thing that really matters in my life. And it should also be the only thing that matters in your life. Amen.